We're in a series called Better. We're taking uh, some of the passages from the Old Testament, from uh, what we call wisdom literature or the poetic literature, and we're talking about some of the better passages. So a couple weeks ago we talked about uh, scripture that says that wisdom is better than lots of money, and last week that God's word is better than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. And today we're going to continue on in our discussion and we're going to talk about how advice is better. Advice. So there's a story that comes out of World War II, and maybe you've heard this before. It's a story about uh, the Allies, and um, there was a lot of uh, airplane battles taking place, and we were losing a lot of planes, and planes were very valuable, and pilots were very valuable. And so they put together a, a group that were supposed to problem solve, like figure out how they could make the planes less vulnerable when they're involved in, in aerial battle. And so what they did is uh, they made this chart. They looked at all the planes that survived um, air battles and where they were, where they were taking shots. And what they, what they noticed was that uh, the planes that were coming back, you know, they were mostly taking hits in these areas. And so the team sat down and said, how can we make the planes better? And so what they decided was we need more armor on the planes. And so they decided we're going to put armor basically here and on the tail. Uh, the problem is that armor is heavy and that it slows down the planes. It makes them less maneuverable and, uh, and means they also can't fly as far on missions. But there was one guy on that team named Abraham Wald, and he was a mathematician. And he looked at the same data that everyone else looked at, but he came up with an entirely different solution. What he said was that the problem that they were dealing with was not the data they had, but the data they didn't have. And so what he suggested was the exact opposite. He said, planes that are getting shot here are coming back. So we don't need to put armor here, right? Because those are surviving. What he said was, what we need is armor on the engines and in the cockpit. That's what we need. And we call this today uh, survivorship um, bias. Um, and that's a different way of looking at things. And so his whole solution was, let's, let's put the armor here and here. They did that. And in fact, it was so successful that even through the Korean War, this is still the way that they put um, armor on airplanes. Sometimes the key to making good decisions, to making wise decisions, isn't what you know. Sometimes it's what you don't know that is really important. Let me ask you this question. How wise are you? Like, is it, is it possible? Is it possible that you uh, don't have all the data you need to make wise choices, maybe as a Christ follower? Maybe there's some information you're missing. Or maybe it's as a husband or a wife. And you have some information and you're acting on that, but really the bigger issue right now is it's not what you know, it's what you don't know that's key to making better decisions. Maybe as a parent, maybe as a brother or sister, maybe as a, a student or an employee or an employer, you know, the list could go on and on and on. And sometimes we can look at problems and just look at what we know, but what we need is the information that we don't have. We need somebody like Abraham Wald who can walk in and go, actually, the problem is you're looking at this backwards. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 13 is the verse we're going to be looking at today. This is actually the verse that I read early in the summer that kind of launched this entire series. I was so intrigued by this passage. Solomon says this, Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew 
how to take advice. Let's pray and we'll dive in. Father God, I, I pray for us this morning. I pray, as I always pray, that your Holy Spirit will take uh, your words and deliver them to our hearts and to our minds. And that you will teach us today what we would not realize on our own. That you will give us wisdom and truth. And Father, I pray that you will uh, show us how you want us to apply your word to our lives today. And so we pray these things now in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. So a couple things I want to point out this morning. By the way, we ran out of bulletins and handouts. We just printed some more and they're on the round table. If you didn't get one, you might want to go back and grab one. Um, so let's talk about this. Here's the first thing I want to mention. And it's the, it's the obvious point that we uh, find when we come to this passage this morning. It's what Solomon says. Everyone needs wise advice. Every single person alive on this planet needs wise advice. So I want to, what I want to do is extrapolate from um, this very simple verse, there's a whole lot of stuff we can pull out to make this point. Again, better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. So we can extrapolate some stuff from this. Some's given, uh, some of the stuff's given to us and some we can pull out. First of all, we're told that one of these people is young and one of these people is old. That, that's obvious and he tells us that. Now, this is an important starting place because in the culture that he was writing, the assumption would always be, well, this is going to be the wise person right off the bat, not this guy. That's, that was kind of the assumed outcome here. So one person is young and one person is old. Uh, the first person is probably in no one because we're not told of anything that he's accomplished. He's young, so it's kind of assumed he's not the second guy who's the king. So he's the king. So he has power. So he's probably pretty smart. He's, he's accomplished a lot of things in his life. He's a king. The first guy is poor, right? He's young, he's poor. Again, we're extrapolating that from the fact that he says it, right? He's, he's, he's poor. But the second guy, we're guessing, is rich because that's part of what goes with being a king. When you're king, among other things, you have a lot of wealth. So you can see how the list is stacking up here, right? And then we, we can assume that the first guy is powerless because he's young and again, we're not told that he has any position of authority or power or anything. But the second guy's a king, so we know he's powerful. We know that he pulls the strings in culture, that he's got a lot of, a lot of power. He's a powerful person. The first one has very limited life experience, right? He's, he's basically an experience, he's young. The second one has a lot of experience by virtue of how long he's lived and by virtue of the fact that he's a king. Um, the first person has what we would assume to be limited success, if any at all. But the second guy, again, we can make some assumptions, right? He's, he's a king, so he's led a nation. Somehow he became king. We don't know how that is, but he became king. He still is king. He has uh, been in charge of upholding justice. He's probably conducted war, and he survived that. That's why he's still the king. He'd know some things about economics and, you know, leadership, and, and he's still king. So it's implied that he's at least done some things right and still is doing some things right. But then we're told this, that the first guy takes advice and the second man uh, does not. In fact, actually what it says is he no longer takes advice. So he used to take advice. He probably took advice when he was younger, but now he doesn't take it anymore. Why doesn't he take advice anymore? Well, we don't know. Maybe he's a know-it-all. Right? You ever met someone who just, they know everything and they don't need advice? Don't look at them if they're in this room. That's rude, but right? You know, we know people like that or maybe just too proud. Too proud is not about to ask anybody for advice. Um, maybe insecure, 
right? Uh, uh, maybe he just doesn't care. Maybe he just doesn't care about growing. I see this with people that get to a certain point in life and like, I don't want to learn anything new because then I have to do something new and I'm just done trying, right? Just don't tell me what to do. I'm old and I'm a king and leave me alone, right? But notice the verdict. Notice the verdict. The verdict is this. It's better to be this guy than it is to be this guy. It's better to be young and in no one and poor and powerless and inexperienced and no success if you take advice. The point is clear. It's better to take advice than to be a rich, powerful king who no longer does. Now, this is written by a guy named Solomon. And Solomon became a king, in fact, of Israel at a, at a young age. And there's a story in 2 Chronicles that, that God comes to him and says, you're the new king and just ask for one thing and I will give that one thing to you. In 2 Chronicles 1, um, if you have your Bibles, you might turn there and look at it. It's a little longer story or I've got it in your notes. But let me read this for you. So here's what Solomon says. Give me now wisdom and knowledge to go out and to come in before this people. For who can govern this people of yours, which is so great? He says, here I am, and I'm the king, and all of these people are in my charge. How can I possibly know how to serve them and, and protect them and, and love them and lead them well? I don't know how to do that. Do you notice what this is about? It's about them, not him. God answered Solomon, because this was in your heart, and you have not asked for possessions or wealth or honor, or for the life of those who hate you, which would have been typical for a new king, and have not even asked for long life. But you have asked for wisdom, and you have asked for knowledge for yourself. Why? That you may govern my people over whom I have made you king. Wisdom and knowledge are granted to you. And I will also give you riches and possessions and honor, such as none of the kings had who were before you, and none after you shall have the like. And so Solomon becomes world-renowned for his wisdom. He is considered the wisest person alive, and people travel from all over the known world to have an audience with him and to hear his sayings and his, his teachings and his proverbs and to get you know, advice from him in different um, matters. But when he was old, we're told that he changed that he, he wasn't walking wisely anymore. In fact, uh, when he was old, he had married many women uh, for political reasons so that he could have you know, some, some political connections with other countries. Uh, in fact, we're told he had 700 wives and 300 concubines, something God had explicitly told him not to do. And yet he had done this foolish thing. It tells us in 1 Kings 11, for when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. You might remember when we did the, back in February, the walk through the Old Testament. Do you remember we talked about the first three kings? We said Saul had no heart for God, and David had a whole heart for God, and Solomon had a what? A half heart for God. Now, here's the really interesting thing. So he builds altars to false gods. He has this half heart. He does what is evil in the sight of God, even though he had been incredibly wise when he was younger, right? Now, consider that Solomon wrote this verse in Ecclesiastes that we're looking at. And some commentators speculate that the old king and the young king that he's talking about were him. 
that he was reflecting back to the kind of person he was when he was younger and the kind of person that he's become. And what he's saying to us is this, you must never think that you no longer need advice. You must no longer think that you've lived long enough, succeeded long enough, learned enough that you don't need advice. It's better to be a person who seeks advice regardless of your age or your position or your accomplishments or your education or your experience or success. You you must never stop seeking wise advice. That's the first thing this morning. It's the obvious point. Here's the second thing that I want to give you, and this comes from Proverbs 15, that good plans require many advisors. So why do we need to seek advice? Because if your plans are going to succeed, you need some advice. Proverbs 15, 22. Without counsel, plans fail. But with many advisors, they succeed. So let me ask you this. What plans do you have for your life? I mean, what are you hoping for? What are you planning for? Maybe it's uh, you know, in your marriage, or maybe it's hoping you'll, you'll get married, or, or that you'll you know, get a date, or whatever it is. You know, what are your plans there? Or for your marriage, or your relationships? What plans do you have in terms of your relationship with your kids, or with your relatives? Or maybe you have plans for your career, or your finances, or you're hoping to retire someday. And if you're wise, you'll seek the input of other advisors. That's what scripture says. And taking advice is what I would call an active discipline. It's not passive. It's not sitting back and, you know, hoping that somebody will come to you with some advice. My experience has been this. People who come to me unsolicited with advice usually aren't bringing the advice that I want, all right? So you need to seek the advice of wise people. And it can be hard sometimes to seek advice from other people. There's all sorts of reasons why people don't do it. Sometimes it's because you're insecure, right? And you're you're, you're like, well, I'm afraid of what I'm going to hear. I'm afraid if I ask for advice and they give it to me that I won't like it. Right? Maybe it might be emotionally hard. Maybe you're afraid if I ask for advice and, and they say, hey, you know, basically you've been doing it wrong, then I'll feel like a failure for the way I've been raising my kids or doing my marriage or whatever it is. Maybe we don't want to feel that way. Maybe we're afraid. Maybe we're just too proud. We're too proud to ask anyone for advice. We're too proud uh, to humble ourselves and listen to other people, but it's better. It's better to seek the advice of other people. We need counselors, and notice here that advisors is, is plural, all right? We need many of them, because even the best human advisors are subject to blind spots and, and ignorance. No one person on this side of heaven has all of the answers, so it's wise to seek the counsel of more than one advisor if you're making an important decision. To depend on only one counselor restricts you to just that person's wisdom and experience, so we need many of them. Uh, you know, I've, I've been here uh, for a lot of years now, but I think it was probably about four or five years into my time here, and um, you, we, we were growing, and a lot of things were changing, and I really felt like I was kind of at this point where I just didn't know how to do this anymore, and I knew that I needed some help. I knew that I needed some, some wisdom, and so I, I sat down one day. I was thinking about this verse, and I thought, okay, I'm going to I'm going to try to think of somebody who's been down the road before me who I can go to for some advice. And so I prayed about it, and I came up with a name. And it was somebody I knew and lived nearby and trusted and, and was really looked up to and revered. And, and so I remember praying about it and then calling him. And we had a lot of relational connections, and we had worked together in the past. And I said, basically, you know, so here's what's going on, and here's what I'm facing. I, I just need some advice. I need some help. Would you be willing to take some time and just kind of mentor me a little bit? And he said, well, let me think about it. And he called me back about a week later. And he said, I prayed about it, and I'm going to have to say no. 
And I felt really, really dejected by the, you know, I was like, wow, I just, I humbled myself. And he's like, no. And then, of course, I was like, I wonder why he said no. And, you know, like all sorts of stuff there. Sometimes that will happen. Sometimes you'll seek someone and they'll say no. Let me just tell you, don't let that stop you. It probably means you're on the right track. Probably means you're asking people of a certain caliber, right? And, and they're busy and they got a lot going on. In fact, what was interesting was, it was just about a week later or so that I got a phone call from someone who I hadn't talked to in over a decade. And this is a, a pastor down in California who now had a church of about 10,000 people. And he called me up one day and he said, hey, you know, I just, I was looking through a directory and he was actually my youth pastor when I was in high school. He said, I saw your name and I thought that can't be the same Bob Barnes, but I had to call and find out. And sure enough, it was. And so we had this great conversation. It was just really enriching. Got off the phone and it occurred to me, I'm like, I should ask him. Right now, he's a really, really busy person. So I called him back and I said, hey, listen, I know you're busy and I know we're a long way apart, but I'm wondering if you would do this for me. And he didn't even hesitate. He said, I would absolutely do it. I'll set aside time for you. You just need to get down here. <laughs> he's in California. So I did. Got some airplane tickets, went down there, did this on several occasions. Let me tell you something. It changed my life. It changed my ministry in the course because we just we would just spend days together and he would point out things that were just obvious to him and not to me. He would say, have you tried this? Have you thought about this? And I got to watch him in action. We need counselors. We need people who can speak wisdom into our lives. And let me just kind of throw a little extra thing here and that is that the, the people that you get advice from don't have to be perfect. In fact, they won't be. They can't be. No one on this side of heaven is perfect and has it all together. But I would say this, don't limit your counselors to only people who appear to you to have everything together on the outside. Look for people who know Jesus and love him. Look for people who are growing in wisdom. Look for people who are growing in Christ-likeness and are self-aware and, and are doing it well somewhere. They don't have to do it well everywhere, but maybe they're just doing their marriage really well and you need some marriage advice. So go to them and get some marriage advice. Maybe don't ask them about finances. Maybe they can't add, but they know how to do a marriage. So again, they don't have to be perfect, but they have to be growing in Christ-likeness. Here's a third thing I want to mention. And as we, as we go through this sermon, we're kind of going to go from the easy stuff to the, to the harder stuff. Three, I need hard truth, not small talk. All right? And I get this idea from Ecclesiastes 7.5 where Solomon says, it is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Now the song of fools is probably just some kind of ditty, some kind of song that has meaningless words to it. But I think kind of he's, he's going for something bigger, broader here. I think he's just talking about dumb talk, foolish talk. I'd say small talk. Just, just small talk, talk that doesn't really add to your life, talk that doesn't include wisdom. My translation is, hard truth from the wise is better than small talk with fools. Small talk is easy, small talk is safe, small talk is comfortable, it doesn't require any prayer on your part, any planning on your part, any effort, but a wise person will seek truth about themselves, and sometimes it's hard truth that we need to hear. And again, there's all sorts of reasons why we might avoid that, why we might avoid uh, the rebuke of other people. Again, it might be because I'm proud and I'm just above it. I don't need anyone to tell me what to do or how to live. Again, maybe I'm insecure and it just feels threatening if I asked somebody for advice and they were like, actually, I do have some advice for you. <laughs> and, you know, they just start punching you in the face. Like, it, most of us don't want that. 
Or maybe we equate rebuke with failure, right? Sometimes maybe somebody rebukes us and we say, oh, so you're saying I've been doing it wrong all this time. And then we just feel like a failure. Or maybe we just feel rejected. Or again, maybe I don't want to change. Maybe I don't want to hear hard truth because then I'd either have to change or feel guilty and I really don't want either one of those. I'd rather just be ignorant and happy. But think about this. If there was something about you that needed to change, something about you that everyone else in the room knew but you, wouldn't you rather have a wise person in your life tell you instead of everybody avoiding the obvious thing, the elephant in the room, and just, well, we'll just have small talk and, and, and safe talk and avoid any possible conflict and discomfort. Right? When, when people who love us speak hard truth to us that we need to hear, it shows that they love us. It shows that they love us so much that they're willing to risk a, a comfortable relationship for our sake, for our well-being. In Proverbs 27 5, it says, better, here's another better verse, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Right? To withhold a correction or rebuke when it is needed is what the writer calls love that is concealed. It's, it's love that is hid. Right? If, if correction is hidden, then it can't help the other person. It, it, it's help denied. It might feel loving, but it isn't. In Matthew chapter 16, we get a great story about this. Uh, Jesus is speaking uh, to his disciples in Matthew 16, 21, and it says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and he must suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. He's increasingly telling the disciples that some really hard times are coming. And then it says, Peter took him aside as Jesus is saying this. He kind of says, hey, Jesus, can I have a word? And kind of goes over to the side and he begins to rebuke Jesus saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And then Jesus turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. Ouch, right? That's a pretty harsh rebuke. You are a hindrance to me for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. And so what I would suggest here is that Jesus lovingly rebukes Peter. It's exactly what he needed. Uh, He didn't hide his love for Peter. He made it known. And Jesus' response might seem kind of harsh, right? But Peter had a messed up agenda. And Jesus was helping him get rid of his foolish agenda and, and replace it with God's agenda. This was going to be absolutely vital for his future, And a wise response would be to receive Jesus' open open rebuke regardless of how uncomfortable and humbling it it might be. We need to welcome this rebuke when it comes into our lives from wise people. So I've shared with you over the years that I deal with a lot of eye issues, macular degeneration and glaucoma, both of which thankfully right now are are kind of stable and doing okay. But I also deal with just uh, kind of chronic severe dry eyes that at times makes it hard for me to just even see clearly and focus. And so my uh, cornea specialist has tried, we've tried all sorts of stuff. And uh, about a month ago we were meeting and he says, you know, there's one other kind of experimental treatment we could try and it it might work for you. Um, It's pretty powerful medication and I think we should give it a try. So, you know, I was like, Great. So I, I went home and I, I was reading all the side effects. Oh, 
like on this medication, right? Three, four pages long, reading this. The only thing that I saw that I even cared about was uh, that it can make you fatigued or tired. Like I just saw that and I was like, oh boy, I don't, I don't want that. My wife came home from work that day and she read the list and she read the list. Like she read the whole list. She had the whole thing down. And then after about a week of taking the medication, we're sitting in the living room one evening and she says to me, she's like, honey, how, how are you feeling? And I, I felt like it was a trap, right? Like, I, like, red flags were going off just the way she was looking at me. And I'm like, uh, fine, why? And she says, well, you know, some of the side effects include things like irritability, anxiety, uh, being on edge. And she said, you know, you really don't seem yourself right now. You don't seem as happy and you don't laugh as much as you were before you were taking the medication. And I, you know, I, my initial response in my head was, well, it's, it's not any of that stuff. Found myself getting really agitated. <laughs> I thought, oh man. And you know, I didn't see it until she pointed it out. It, I didn't really want to hear it because what's the first thing I thought of in my mind? So I've been irritable for a week now? Like, right? I didn't want to hear that, but I needed to. Because if she didn't tell me, then I wouldn't be self-aware. And if I wasn't self-aware, then I wouldn't be able to, to pray about this and do my best as I go through this to do better, right? To do better. And so I didn't want to hear it, but I needed to hear it. And let me just mention this. The way that you respond to the correction of others will be training the people around you, right? So we're all training the people around us who try to lovingly rebuke us. And we're training them sometimes, if we just push back and yell back, then what are we training them to do? Not tell us the truth, right? And some of us are surrounded with people who know the truth about us and they're never going to tell us because we have, we've trained them not to do it. Or we can train people to do it by, by accepting their advice, by embracing it, by being kind, by saying, I'll think about it and I'll, I'll pray about it. But here's the point. We should welcome this. We need the advice, even the hard truth from other people. And the fourth thing I want to point out is this, that there are going to be times when we hear hard truth and hard truth will always require amazing grace. And this is something that was just really borne out to me over the last few weeks as I've thought, really the thing about this topic that has resonated with me more than anything else. And so I, I want to kind of make this point, and it's going to take us a minute to get there, but Jesus is with his disciples in the upper room. And they're uh, engaged in what we refer to as the Last Supper. And they're actually observing the Passover meal. And you might remember the situation. They're seated around a table, and, and Jesus, at one point in the discussion, warns them that one of them is going to betray him. And, and then um, he introduces what we now refer to as the Lord's Supper. And then after this, you might remember, the disciples get in an argument about which one of them <laughs> was the greatest after Jesus talked about <laughs> his death and all that. And, um, and then it says that Jesus rebukes them for that. And then he says this in Luke chapter 22. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And then Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison 
and to death. And then Jesus said this, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times, three times that you know me. Now notice in here uh, that he says the rooster will not crow and the implication is once before you deny me three times. Now after this, Jesus gives a farewell discourse that's recorded in John. He gives this high priestly prayer that's recorded in John 17 and then it says they sing a hymn and they begin their walk to Gethsemane. So a little time's taken place since this first warning to Peter. And now Mark records this, and it sounds familiar, but they're in a different place, and the wording is a little bit different now. It says, now, as they're on their way to Gethsemane, and Jesus says to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So now it's clearly a different context, a different situation, but then Jesus utters some words that sound familiar, but are slightly different. And then Peter says to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus says to him, truly I tell you this very night, he says, before the rooster crows twice, not once, but twice, you will deny me three times. And so it sounds like as we go through this, there's kind of two warnings here. We'll talk about that. And then they, they go to the garden and they pray in the garden and Jesus is arrested and the disciples flee and then he's on trial before Caiaphas. And then in Matthew 26, um, you might look this up in your Bibles here. In Matthew 26, um, it, it tells us this, as Jesus is on trial. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up and she said to him, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it. There we go. He denies it. Before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him and said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath saying, I do not know the man. And after a little while, a bystander came up and said to Peter, certainly you two are one of them for your accent betrays you. And then he began to invoke a curse on himself, a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Like you can imagine, right? Being warned and then doing it anyway. And then a little time goes by, and in Mark we read about Jesus, uh, about Peter denying Jesus again. And it's kind of familiar, but it's not exactly the same. And in fact, in Mark 14, 71, it says that after he's denied Jesus what appears to be three more times, it says this, but Peter began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the uh, rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and he wept. So scholars read this, and some scholars believe that what happens here is Jesus gives him two warnings, that before the rooster crows once, he'll deny him three times, and then again three more times before the rooster crows twice. Now, Peter does the very thing that he swore he would not do. Did he deny Jesus three times or six? We can debate about that, but the one thing we know for sure is Peter is absolutely devastated by what he has done. It just feels a little more devastating, doesn't it? If you did it three times, (laughs) realize what you'd done and then did it again? How low would Peter be at this point? How low would you be? If you had done this, you swore you wouldn't do it. You were warned about it and you did it anyways. 
I wonder if he was low enough to think that maybe he was no longer worthy to follow Jesus. Or maybe that he was no longer usable by God. Or maybe this was a sin that was just too far. Maybe he would be unable to forgive himself for what he's done or to believe that he could be forgiven by Jesus. He might even be, um, he might have even responded like another disciple who, who betrayed Jesus that day. What gave him the hope to go on? I would suggest to you that the, the hope that he had was found in the, actually in the hard-hitting rebuke of Jesus that was given earlier. Right? which might have seemed harsh at the time. But those words were more than a warning. They were also words of, of hope. Jesus did not say to Peter, he did not say, if you do this, and I know you're going to, then there's nothing left for you. He didn't say that. Again, let's look again at Luke 22. Notice the warning that Jesus gave him. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you. I love that I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when, you have re- when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus says, Satan wants to take you down and I have denied him. Right? But Peter, by the way, you will deny me. Even though I've warned you, 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 you'll deny me. Even though I'm warning you multiple times, you'll still deny me. But I've prayed for you. I've prayed for you in advance. I've prayed that your faith will not fail. By the way, if Jesus prays that your faith will not fail, you've got a pretty good advocate there, right? Probably means you're gonna be okay. And then he says, and when you turn or when you repent, in other words, I know that you're going to, and you'll strengthen your brothers. In other words, you'll have a place of leadership. Peter, I'm warning you not to do this, but you're gonna do it anyways, and after you do it, that you'll repent and you'll have faith and you'll be a leader among the brethren. So Jesus' rebuke was the best thing for Peter because it had grace because there was hope. Sometimes people say to me, I would never do that with my child. I would never tell my child, listen, honey, I know what you're thinking. I've been your age and I know you're gonna do this. Don't do it. Don't do this terrible thing. And if you do this terrible thing, right? Parents would say, I would never say to my kids, and if you do this terrible thing and you go out and do this awful, foolish, sinful thing, I just, here's what you need to know. I've already prayed for you. And you can walk right in that front door and I'll be here for you when you turn again. Right? I have parents tell me I would never say that to my kids. And when I say why, they'll say because then they'll just go do it. (laughs) Right? But that's what Jesus did. That's what he did. Now, of course, there are often natural consequences for our sinful choices. Right? There could be a scar. You could get arrested. You could lose a job or a relationship or an opportunity or your savings account or the respect of other people. But hard truth must never be devoid of God's grace. If you are a believer, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've done, you must always remember that you are saved by grace. You are not saved by works. You are saved by the work of Christ on the cross. He did it all. It was complete. You are saved by grace and you stay saved by grace. It's not a bait and switch. It's not like, well, you get saved by grace, but then if you blow it, you know, you're out. Romans 8, 1 tells us this. There is therefore now no condemnation, none for those who are in Christ Jesus, not for your past sins or your present sins or your future sins. 
Going on to the end of the chapter, it says, For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, not even the stupid, dumb, foolish, ridiculous things you're going to do in the future can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Right? Because we're not saved by works. We're saved by grace. Am I encouraging you to go out and do stupid things? Of course not. Don't do that, all right? But just remember, when you give advice to others, when you give advice to believers, never forget the gospel. And if you ever receive a rebuke from someone because they love you and they forget to mention the gospel, go ahead and remind yourself of the gospel, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When I was in high school, my uh, junior and uh, senior year, I was going to a church that was about 40, 45 minutes by freeway from where I lived. And so back in those days, you know, uh, I you know, go to church in the morning and go to Sunday school and then go to church and then hang out afterwards in fellowship and maybe get some, something to eat with some friends. And, and then we'd have church in the evening and we had youth group and I led worship. So I had a lot of stuff to do and I, sometimes though, I had nowhere to go for like three hours and I didn't want to drive all the way home and drive all the way back. And uh, on one occasion, I was going to be leading worship that evening and so um, the office secretary, she's like, I know you need a key, so let me give you a key, and this will get you in the building. Now she's like, except, here's the deal. I need you to give me this key back when you're done. All right, I'm going to trust you, so here's the key, but give it back to me when you're done. It's great. So anyways, I had the key that day, unlocked the building, got in, uh, prepped for worship. End of the day, went home. I think a week went by. I still had the key. I'd kind of forgotten about it. I was church in the morning the next week and then it was uh in the afternoon i had a couple hours to kill and i thought uh, i got to get ready for worship in the evening and i thought oh well i have a key i can just get in the church that's super convenient and i'm doing god's work and so i kind of let myself in the building uh kind of knowing i wasn't supposed to but i did anyways because i was like i was doing god's work and so i went in and practiced a little bit read my bible a little bit and this went on for one week and two weeks and on and on and on it was super convenient and i was using it to do good things except i wasn't supposed to have the key and then one day i was in the building in a part of the building i wasn't supposed to be in because i had a key i wasn't supposed to have and in walks uh pastor rick who is the CE pastor, and he says, Bob, I think we need to go to my office and have a talk. And I was like, oh, and we went in his office, and he very kind of, you know, sat back in his chair, and he's like, look, I know you have a key, and you were supposed to give it back, and you didn't give it back, and I, and you've been using it, and I'm, I'm just like, just melting in my chair. I'm just so humiliated, and he's like, what I need you to do is I need you to give me the key, and I need you to, you know, I need you to admit that you didn't, right, that you kept the key when you weren't supposed to, and I'm just cringing. I took the key out, and I slid it across the table, and I'm, you know, pretty much on the floor in a, a pool of humiliation at this point, and, and feeling really bad, and then he says this to me. He's like, listen, here's what you need to remember. This is not the end of the story. There is, there is grace for you, and if you're willing in life to admit your sin, and if you're willing to repent of that, and if you're willing to walk humbly, and, and have integrity. And if you keep serving the Lord, right, which in that case was, was leading worship and teaching, even with the sacrifice of not having a key. And if you have integrity and you follow the Lord in that way, you never know. You never know. Someday, some church 
might give you a key. <laughs> and this is it right here. Right? You guys. <laughs> he spoke really hard truth to me that day. And I needed to hear it. But he also spoke grace to me. The grace of God. Never forget the gospel. Never forget the grace when you're speaking truth, hard truth to other people and when they're speaking it to you. So what do we do here? Well, pretty simple. Couple things in your notes. The first is this. We need to be people who seek and take advice. No matter who you are, no matter how old you are, no matter how successful you are, no matter how much you know, no matter how many degrees you have, you need the advice of wise people. Don't be an old foolish king. And always, always hold up the advice of others to Scripture. And we've talked about that the last few weeks. Last week we talked about the importance of Scripture, right? Always hold it up against Scripture. Does it match what, what Scripture says? Does it match what the gospel says? But here's my question for you. Where could you use some advice today? Where would it be wise for you in your life right now to get a little more information, a little more wisdom? Where is that? I encourage you, be active, seek advice, take advice. And the second thing is simple, we've talked about this, you need a team, you need a team. Find some believers who have a proven wisdom and integrity in particular areas of life. And again, they don't have to be experienced, but invite them in to your world. Invite them in to give you the, the hard stuff. Just be willing to say, you know what? If I need some help, I need some advisors. If you see something in me that needs to be pointed out, I'm giving you permission. Right, because here's what I found. The people you most need to hear from are probably the people least likely to go there. Right? Like there are people who will offer you their advice unsolicited. That usually isn't the most helpful advice. Find people that are wise and invite them in. Say, I know you love me. I know you care for my, about me. I know you don't want to hurt my feelings, but I'm asking for it. I'm asking for you to share wisdom with me. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for uh, just a, a very simple um, passage that has so much for us. So much. And Father, I thank you that uh, you have placed us into your family, into the, the body of Christ, into the bride of Christ, that we are a church, that we are family and we don't walk alone and we don't have to follow you alone and we don't have to walk through this world and walk through marriage and parenting and jobs and all that stuff alone. You have placed wise people around us and they are there to help us and to speak wisdom into our lives. And so Father, I pray that we would be those who would invite others in invite wise people in, that we would be humble enough to do that and humble enough to take advice, even hard advice, even, even difficult stuff that's hard to hear, but that we would do it, Father, because it's good for us. It's wise for us to do that. And because there's a lot on the line, Father, when we're walking in wisdom, it benefits all the people around us that we care about. May we care about our family and our marriage and our kids and those around us enough to humble ourselves and invite advisors in. Father, may we be people who walk in love. And, and I pray for your grace to permeate 
all of our conversations, all of them, and especially the hard ones, that we will never forget the grace by which we have been saved. We thank you for that grace now. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said,